welcome everybody to a new installment of The Hot Dish. Uh, today, my special guests are Dr. Glenda Humiston, Vice President of Agriculture and Natural Resources at the entire University of California. She has a very big job. And Ron LaRue, President of the National Farmers Union. This program is What is Rural? And we're today gonna talk about defining what rural is and how important it is when we're looking at public policy. So a couple weeks ago, I was able to um, participate in a hearing um, and the Senate House Committee, Ag Committee. Um, and in that hearing, um, Glenda, one of my guests, raised a really important issue, which is, how do you define rural? And um, obviously being from California, there is always a um, concern that people don't appreciate, number one, how agricultural um, dependent and important California is, but how their unique kind of urban rural uh, locations create real complexities for rural communities in California. And being from a state like North Dakota, um, which grows completely different crops, which does uh, um, completely different things than California, I thought this is something I think we need to explore. If we're going to be that one country project, uh, an entity that looks at national rural issues, we really need to understand this issue better. And who better than the head of the North, or the head of the North, uh, not North Dakota, we always think they're North Dakotans, but who better than the head of the National Farmers Union um, to engage with this conversation? And so um, if we can start out, Glenda, by having you kind of talk a little bit about the challenges of public policy application in California, given the definition of rural, and then we'll turn to Rob and ask him um, if he has a response to that or what, what he thinks um, can uh, accommodate a lot of your, I think, very legitimate concerns. Well, thank you, Senator. I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, discuss this issue. It's, uh, it's not just California that has this issue. In, in many ways, it's a Western states issue. And it has to do with a couple factors. Um, one is just how extremely large our counties are. You know, for example, in California, San Bernardino County is larger than nine U.S. states. We, we have over 30 counties larger than a U.S. state. And, and other Western states have similar uh, size issues around counties. So when you have that kind of situation and a definition of rural that says if one community inside that county is over 50,000 population, the entire county is labeled metropolitan, you've just got a ridiculous situation as far as definitions go. And what really exacerbates it in California is uh, actually some good policy we've pursued for the last 30 years. Uh, early in the 1990s, uh, I have to give former governor, uh, our former gov, oh my gosh, I'm forgetting his name. <laughs> That's okay. Anyway, the, the Republic, Pete Wilson, sorry. Governor Pete Wilson at the time in the early 90s took upon himself to really push a growth management issue, uh, uh, an issue of preserving farmlands and wild lines and, and trying to create city-centered growth, more efficient use of, 
urban infrastructure. And California has really adopted that with some fits and starts, certainly over the years. But that has really made our situation worse because we now have larger communities that we've actually protected our farmland around. And so when you try to access programs such as rural development, where you've got a population limit of 10,000 for water systems, we've got huge rural communities that are just over that 12,000, 15,000, whatever, that, that can't access these programs that they really should be able to. In, in fact, it's, it's, if, you're, if you're a community between 10 and 20,000 in size, up to say 100,000 in size, you're really in a political no man's land as far as accessing federal programs. So I, I, mean, I, I think that a lot of people don't think about this. I think in Arizona, there's only nine counties in Arizona. And so when um, uh, kinds of, uh, that, the kinds of federal policies really adopt county definitions to determine what's rural, we end up with these anomalies and we end up not serving really significant and important and in many ways, maybe um, uh, counties that are, are maybe economically more distressed than what we think. Um, Rob, I'm gonna turn to you. I mean, th this, this is a question of resources. So I'm from a state like North Dakota and I listen to this about California and I say, well, does this now mean that I will have a smaller pot of rural development dollars or rural water dollars that I can access if I'm if I'm sympathetic uh, from uh, a voting standpoint to the California slash Arizona Western concern that Glenda just outlined? And um, how involved have, has the National Farmers Union been in kind of exploring and analyzing this issue? Well, I, I appreciate the, the question here because it's a, it's an enormous challenge because, you know, as has just been kind of talked about, the diversity of the kind of rural urban nexus in a state like California uh, being very different from that of uh, North Dakota, but then several other, you know, whether we're talking about the deep south where you also have, uh, you know, high entrenched poverty, uh, Appalachia and so forth, um, the diversity across the entire kind of rural spectrum is uh, creates enormous challenges for getting those resources out. Uh, but I think part of the, certainly the work that we're trying to do is make sure that some of the fundamental uh, systems that we have uh, that uh, communities can access uh, programs regardless of size for uh, some of those basics like uh, water and sewer and so forth. That's a program, right? Those are incredibly popular. They are way oversubscribed. And traditionally, um, you, we don't get enough help out there, uh, regardless of whether or not uh, we're talking about California communities, North Dakota or uh, West Virginia, for example. And so it's pushing uh, policymakers to make sure that the resources are there for some of these fundamental. We can get into, um, you know, different definitions and, and access to programs for uh, economic development, but I think it starts with making sure that the resources there are for, are there for some of those fundamental utilities. Hopefully, we'll get a chance to also talk about broadband and so forth, because mm -hmm. when we look at disparities in rural uh, healthcare um, and access to uh, economic uh, opportunities, some of these key uh, utility pieces, water, the sewage, and uh, uh, and broadband are, you know, essential elements to kind of lifting up these communities. Well, I, I think when you 
when you think about this and you think about the very legitimate issues that Glenda has just raised, and you think about um, this issue of overprescribed and, and just for people who don't work in this policy area, it just means that there's more need than there are dollars available. And when you have a situation like that in public policy, you, you know, and you don't think you can expand the pot of money that's available, the first thing you think about when you represent a state like North Dakota is how can I make sure my communities get it and they get themselves in the best position. And, and I think honestly, that's one of, the, one of the drivers of this challenge, which is defining what in fact makes, um, makes a community rural. And so Glenda, I, I just, just give us an idea of what you would change in definitions that would address some of the concerns that you have or priorities in uh, programs like Rob just talked about. You know, we can talk about access to kind of the bright new shiny object, but that that should not be a dependency on accessing healthcare or accessing uh, good quality water or sewer or broadband. Yeah, absolutely. and. You know, there's probably a lot of small tweaks that could happen, but I would say in, in the bigger picture, what we really need to do is start breaking down this, this wall of something's urban, something's rural. Because really, if you think about it, we're all in this together. You know, our, our agriculture grows food that goes to cities. Our cities are our markets. And for, for food processing, as just one example, we don't want big, large food processing, warehousing, cold storage, distribution facilities on our farmland. They need to be in communities, in cities, with wastewater treatment and infrastructure, because uh, they're manufacturing, basically, once that crop leaves a farm. And, and we're losing out on so many potential opportunities. You know, you, you, a real obvious one here in the West, we're suffering from drought again. And, and you know, drought is a national issue. It just is in different parts of the nation in different years. But one of the real opportunities is to be able to take this extremely highly treated wastewater that our cities produce and actually get that piped out into rural areas for irrigation. And yet a lot of the rules right now just don't allow that. So, so I, I think a short answer to your question is that we really need to start looking at this perhaps on more of a regional basis and how we're really serving the entire system. If you look at the uh, rural business programs, they actually did that in a, a previous farm bill because they recognize that a lot of the, the business, the, the agricultural support businesses were better serving agriculture if they were in communities. So they took that population limit off any agricultural business that was serving farmers. They can be located in, in a city that's larger. Same thing with farm workers. You really don't want farm workers living on the farm uh, too much. It'd be better for them to be in apartments in a community where their kids can go to school and they've got services. So that's just a couple examples where we've recognized that these artificial population limits don't necessarily serve the agricultural community well. Well, there's always that issue of, you know, uh, uh, kind of, I don't want things to change. We need repopulation of rural communities. And if I were a cynic and a skeptic about all of this, I would say, 
you know, that will lead to further depopulization of um, rural counties in my state. Um, if, if in fact, Fargo can access the same level of services that Grafton can. Now, Grafton's a small community. I'm assuming all our listeners know where Fargo is. It's our largest community. But, but they understand this. I mean, we labeled our effort one country project because I think way too often we try and draw these distinctions between rural and urban instead of what's good public policy for the economy and for the people of our country. And, and so I think um, when we look at rural, we know that, that there's constantly demographic analysis that is done urban rural, you know, what's the rural poverty rate, what's the access to education, what's the access to broadband. And we're afraid, I mean, quite honestly, doctor, I, I'm afraid that if we lose those distinctions um, too broadly, that we will continue to see rural America, what I would consider rural America, the communities that you support and the communities that I know exist in North Dakota left behind. And well, that'll be I, have to, I have to push back a little bit because okay. I know what we're doing here in California. And we really are taking a regional approach and a regional triple bottom line approach. We're taking into account the people, the planet and prosperity and as we look at things like regional food systems, or yesterday I was in a meeting all day about bio-based products and, and trying to create a regional strategy around that, we're looking to create jobs and economic development in our small communities. And, and if that's a key part of the strategy, then you're not gonna be depopulating them, but you're going to be seeing where the, the industry clusters and the economic development strategies can appropriately get those jobs and growth in those rural communities. Well, Rob, I want to bring you into this conversation because um, I, the, the National Farmers Union, yes, worries about what's happening with American agriculture, but uh, I don't think there's any national group on on the horizon that really focuses on rural communities, really focuses on the work that needs to be done to improve the quality of life for everyone who lives in, in rural America. Um, so, so when you listen to this discussion, what, what do you take from it as, a, as that national advocacy group that, yep, we need to make that change or nope, this is gonna be a problem for the communities that I know exist out there? Well, I think it's really curious to, to look at this question of kind of regional uh, uh, kind of development, uh, whether it's regional food systems and so forth, because um, at least in some respects, that begins to get at one of the, the heart of the matter that uh, Farmers Union has been focused on for a long time. And that is the fact that in so many of these rural communities, whether farm communities and others, is it's their manufacturing jobs and their uh, food processing jobs, et cetera, have all uh, been uh, basically transported uh, out. And so we very much are focused on creating an environment. And that means making sure that we have public policy that is creating incentives um, and driving uh, development in more kind of regional focus. Uh, if you just look at a couple of the, uh, the headlines these days about the fact that four companies, two multinational companies control over 85% of the beef industry. What that means for all of these rural communities is that this is an extraction uh, economy. These rural communities are trying to hang on, uh, but don't have any of the processing because it's been moved out and is concentrated in just a few places around the country. 
So the more that we can drive through our public policy, um, this not only infrastructure in rural development, uh, but creating incentives uh, for more regional and sustainable uh, kind of food systems uh, and manufacturing systems, um, I think that uh, that helps everyone in our community, not just the farmers, it helps our schools, it helps everyone along the way. Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree. I wanna turn to a couple additional issues um, like uh, climate and broadband, but before I do that, um, Glenda, I will tell you, you know, that, that there is an attitude among a lot of the country that nothing good comes from California. <laughs> that we can't learn anything from the great work that you do there, even though you're a state that's heavily dependent on agriculture. You're doing some amazing work on climate. I just have been so impressed with um, the the uh, diversity of your economy. How do how do how do I overcome that when I say, look, I I think that the state of California that's really talking about regional diversity and regional um, kind of applications has a great model or a great program. I can just see a lot of my colleagues roll their eyes because they just is, there just is such a kind of heavy knee jerk against anything that's Californian. Yeah, and I think that's so sad because I think one of the reasons we are successful here, we're willing to learn from anybody. We look all over the, the nation and learn. I mean, I have to admit, I've been jealous for decades of your Bank of North Dakota. <laughs> I, I want a Bank of California similar to that. And, and we've actually been working on that a little bit too. But, you know, I'm very active in our Western states regional efforts because a lot of our issues here are a little different than say the, the North Central or the Southern states. And, and if you look at all the various um, associations, be it rural development or conservation or, you know, your land grant universities, we do have these large regional associations where we do try to share best practices. So I think there's actually more of that going on than you realize at the, the program delivery level. I, I think it's just when you get into politics that everybody loves to find a good reason to bash somebody else. <laughs> well, I want to I want to turn to a couple issues, and and um, as I said, I think that um, there's there's opportunity, but we also need infrastructure, and we need certainty in in policy. Want to talk a little bit about where we see kind of the climate environment? You know, number one, we've we just finished at the bipartisan policy center our work on um, and issued a report on natural climate solutions, um, be it in forestry or in um, in soils. And we also have, uh, I, I think there's a growing interest in carbon markets as it relates to agriculture. But um, I think the work that you're doing in California on biomass is so fascinating. And so Glenda, if you could just kind of talk a little bit about uh, California's agricultural involvement in in climate and what you see working and what you see could be transported out of California to other locations. Well, we've got a lot of different things going on here. You know, we've, we've had 20 plus years of, of say, uh, examples like our Marin Carbon Project, where we've been looking to see how we can pursue healthier soil that sequesters carbon while producing more grazing for our livestock. That's just one example. Um, digesters for the dairies, uh, better ways to do no-till that, that actually keeps soil health and, and less carbon into the atmosphere. 
And we're also not just looking at the on the farm production either. We're, we're looking at pre-planting and post-harvest activities throughout agriculture to see how we can get the entire supply chain to be more conscious of plant or uh, reducing greenhouse gas uh, emissions. And what we find is often when we are implementing something to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, once we get the technology mature, it often is saving money for the farmers. Or in some cases, like the work we're doing currently with biomass, uh, my hope is that it's going to become a profit center rather than a cost center. But, you know, we're still, a lot of what holds us back there is infrastructure and supply chains, quite frankly. Yeah, Rob, I think when you when you look at this issue, um, and, and those of us who grew up in rural communities know that farmers can adapt if they see there's something in it for them. And I know a lot of farmers who have adapted new practices to lower input costs, as the doctor just talked about. But also, you know, it just, you know, these, the average farmer is in their uh, late 50s, early 60s. Um, they've been doing this a lot of years. They have a lot of, um, uh, I think resistance to doing something different because they only have a few harvests left and they're worried that to be early adapters or to change what they're doing may in fact affect their profit center. What do you think is the attitude of um, farmers that are uh, your membership in terms of adapting new practices and what would it take to, to you know, encourage more no-till in states like North Dakota to encourage more um, conservation practices that can be good not only um, make their businesses more drought resistant, more water conscious, but also um, maybe provide a stream of income in terms of capturing carbon. Yeah, well, first and foremost, right, as, as farmers, we like to think of ourselves as some of the original conservationists, right? We care deeply about the land and making sure that it's going to be not only productive, but sustainable over generations because these family farms want to be able to, uh, to keep that uh, uh, going uh, well into the future. And so we've had an early kind of appreciation of that. And as you just pointed out, uh, also quick to, to innovate and try, uh, uh, try new things. I would just note, I mean, North Dakota Farmers Union was a leader in carbon markets for farmers, uh, you know, back in 2005, 2006. Um, and, uh, but the infrastructure wasn't there for that to kind of take off. But what it did tell us is uh, very early, farmers uh, appreciated, uh, you know, an opportunity where by adopting uh, different practices, uh, they could uh, be incentivized to participate in this uh, carbon exchange. The, um, I, I think the trick now is, is much like Glenda has talked about is, is getting enough data and information and, and knowledge and technology to, to get us beyond kind of this newness, if you will, and uh, to be able to find out what the real kind of monetary uh, opportunities are going to be. Um, a lot of what USDA is focused on right now with uh, their incentivizing uh, pilot programs across the country uh, is, is looking at ways that uh, farmers can adapt in different ways, working with uh, universities, extension, et cetera. Um, I think that will help us kind of accelerate uh, this period that we're in right now, where a lot of farmers are looking at the uh, potential for carbon markets. They see a lot of potential regulations, they're worried, but they are always going to be looking for that opportunity 
that coupled with their desire to make sure that they uh, ultimately have sustainable operations, uh, both profitable and sustainable into the future, is is I think encouraging. Yeah, I I, I had an interesting conversation a, a couple years back with a soybean farmer, large soybean farmer, very engaged in um, in international marketing, and when when we talked about this, he said even if you don't believe it we're gonna to have to grow in a more sustainable way, in a more climate friendly way, in order to sustain our international markets. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, They look at competition coming from South America or competition um, growing in other parts of the world and, and say, how can we adapt? The, the challenge that you have in all of this is the, the large purchasers that potentially could come into the carbon market are, are not going to buy carbon credits um, in a way or buy carbon credits that present real, um, in my opinion, real reputational risk. Uh, you know, the, the great example is um, they buy carbon credits from Indonesia and they're not gonna deforest something. They just move on to the next forest and deforest in another place. And so um, I think everybody is a little leery of how this is gonna work and how we do the certification. I think that uh, Secretary Vilsack has done a terrific job in kind of, you know, expressing, um, uh, you know, that the ability that we would have to organically grow these programs, no pun intended, but organically um, grow our climate programming in ways that number one, provide legitimacy to any kind of carbon market, but also um, achieve, uh, uh, you know, basically get uh, adapters to adapt the practices. And in, in, in that context, it will be a win-win for everyone. Um, yeah, if, if, if I might just add, uh, uh, you know, on this, as we look at whether it's carbon markets or different technologies, uh, there was a reference to digesters that uh, dairies can take advantage of, you know, we, we also have to make sure that any kind of public policy uh, that is behind this is is careful not to incentivize um, uh, efficiencies over um, a, a quality kind of sustainable growth. Uh, one uh, concern that we're uh, certainly looking on is if, if the uh, market opportunities and technology is only accessible by a small few uh, in some of the absolute largest uh, farmers out there, um, then we have a huge missed opportunity in terms of climate mitigation, but also a missed opportunity for, uh, as we are talking about here, these rural communities. And so I, I think all of this uh, eye on technology, eye on uh, markets, uh, also has to keep in mind um, uh, what those incentives are and what the participation uh, across the country of farms of lots of different sizes is going to look like. Yeah, I, I want to add to that too, that if, if we're really truly going to help agriculture pursue climate smart agricultural practices, we've got to really view this as a need for a toolbox with many tools. Carbon markets are potentially a very valuable tool in certain situations and with the kind of, of guardrails that Rob just pointed out the need for. We're really looking at a much broader umbrella of ecosystem services. How do we start valuing and quantifying and compensating landowners to produce the kind of ecosystem services we all need that deal with drought as well as climate change and 
risk management, you know, things like groundwater recharge and, and um, wetlands mitigation. And, and we've got examples out there, but we've got to really start making those more available and we, we, we have to better understand them. Yeah, I, I, I don't think there's any doubt about it. And the, the, the challenge that you have, again, and, and both of you, I'd like your response. You, American, the American farmer is an older person. I mean, whether it's male or female, the, the people who are doing a lot of this work, as we know, are, are older. They maybe have, they look into the future, they have five to 10 more harvests before they kind of move on. And so this is, as you all know, in your life, you, you're going to get more conservative. You're going to say, look, I'm not, not going to be the innovator necessarily that I should be at this point in time. And the question that I have, and then on the other side, you know, as, as you saw, Glenda, during the hearing in the House, you know, that, that there was one side of the political aisle that that didn't want to talk about this, that did yeah. not want to talk about, you know, what what could work on climate. But the longer we delay that conversation, the longer we're going to delay policy. Yeah. But it really shows you the potential for, um, I think, political resistance to uh, that kind of incentivized system, Glenda, that you're talking about. Which but is Senator, you yourself just fed that very dichotomy. You're talking about our farmers being older, therefore they're conservative. And, and I push back every time somebody says that because I don't believe it's true. Um, American farmers for decades have proven they're some of the most innovative and sometimes almost crazy risk takers out there. That isn't the problem. The problem is when you are a farmer and you are well-established, You've got hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars tied up in your own personal infrastructure, your buildings, your equipment, your, your, your whatever you need to do for farming the crop you farm the way you do. It's not easy to shift that. It's expensive. That is what makes it hard for farmers to do quick, quick rapid shifting of their farming practices. It's not their lack of interest most of the time. It's just that when you've got all that money sunk into hardware and facilities, you can't shift quickly. Yeah. And, and, and that, we have to understand that if we're going to create the policy and programs to help them. Yeah, I think I understand that. But I also live in a place that, um, you know, uh, if you look at no-till, we've been doing no-till in Western North Dakota for a lot of years, born out of necessity, not out of an interest in in um, innovation, um, but I can take you to the Red River Valley um, in the winter and uh, you're gonna see ditches full of topsoil. And so it's not like there isn't, there is, I mean, it's not like there isn't a resistance, I think, to early adaption or even adaption of longstanding practices. And, you know, that the first thing you'll get when you talk about this is, is don't take away what I already have. I want the certainty of being able to continue to use the practices that I'm using right now without any, without any kind of um, uh, change. And then if I'm profitable in using those practices, how interested am I in something different that would add, number one, I agree with you, add maybe additional infrastructure costs in terms of equipment or uh, different seed varieties or whatever it might be. How, how innovative am I going to be if I'm uh, profitable the way I do it right now and there isn't any 
kind of um, regulation or mandate on the horizon that encourages, you know, the carrot and the stick. Um, you know, if if the carrot is something that's additive, it and that's all you have, I think that makes the challenge more difficult. I think that, um, you know, these are really good points. I think that the, you know, one of the pieces here is um, that we have to, um, we have to get still more information out there. We have these examples in parts of the country that have kind of been driven, as you said, you know, out of necessity toward uh, different adaptions and so forth. Uh, the, the fact is that even in areas where that hasn't necessarily uh, taken up uh, margins, financial margins are growing, you know, ever so uh, narrow. And so we have to find, you know, ways as uh, business owners to, uh, to increase that margin. And so whether it's through these pilot programs that USDA is looking at different models and different ways to approach this, but being able to capture some of the value, not just in terms of like future sustainability, but being able to affect our bottom line uh, each year, I think that will be one of the keys uh, to uh, greater adoption. Well, yeah, I think that's why we're so interested in this concept of ecosystem services. I also think that 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 technical assistance you're discussing is critical. That's one reason why I, I'm currently recruiting over a hundred brand new cooperative extension scientists here in California, and some of them are in some some fairly new areas. They're not just simply uh, helping our farmers be more productive and grow crops better. We're actually putting cooperative extension specialists out in the field that are looking at how to create those regional food systems and small scale grocery manufacturing and ecosystem services. I'm, I'm placing some ag technology specialists that are going to be doing research on what kind of ag technology can be developed specifically for small and medium scale farmers. And I think, you know, basically providing that type of public R&D to our agricultural community is going to be critical in helping them meet these challenges. Well, I, 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 you know, we have to be mindful of time here. I, I just want to ask both Glenda and Rob, I mean, we've had such a great conversation and I think an important conversation with, with a lot of perspective. I'd love to, to get back together with both of you and, and schedule a, an, an ongoing conversation as we see these concepts move forward in public policy. And, and so to, from my standpoint is, yeah, how do you, you know, how do you take a region of the country that that is more skeptical of the need for um, uh, to adapt practices that are, as, as you talk about, ecosystem practices or practices that are climate friendly, that are water friendly, that are conservation friendly? Um, you know, the, the, the political dynamic of this really challenges I think um, us uh, as as people who believe that uh, the future of agriculture has always been in adaptations, it's always been in new technologies. How do we then kind of advance our our interests um, in ways that aren't punitive um, and and get adapters to uh, um, really create a renaissance? I mean, when you think about it, that the I always say the history of American agriculture was built on two fundamental practices. 
and you know a lot of people will I'd, I'd love to have this debate but a lot of people would disagree i would tell you the co-op model uh -huh. which i think was critical in terms of uh, adaptations and out of that co-op model uh, glenda grew the bank of north dakota this uh -huh. is a 19 you know 20s invention um to really push back and it was a way to co-op uh capital um, but the other thing is the land grant colleges, mm -hmm. and and I I I am so fascinated by the work that you're doing at Davis, Glenda. But I'm telling you, if you're hiring a hundred, we're going to have a heck of a time hiring that same workforce in North Dakota. And as you know from uh, my testimony, I continually brought all this back to workforce and training the trainers. Um, if we if we want adaptations and and to advance um, new techniques that can be both climate smart and create a better uh, economic opportunity on the farm. Well, don't don't feel too jealous because we have a real challenge with recruitment here because of the high cost of living in California. <laughs> yeah, but but um, you want to compete with forty below, Glenda? Yeah, yeah. No, I, hey, I, I choose. I grew up in Colorado in the mountains. I choose not to live in forty below anymore. <laughs> But but I think I think this workforce issue, I will tell you, um, Rob and Glenda, I think I think um, getting young people, young scientists excited about participating and start talking in North Dakota, 90 percent of our land mass. Think about this is engaged in production agriculture. Mm -hmm. If we're going to be part of the climate discussion in North Dakota beyond what we do in energy, um, uh, we need to we need to uh, be engaging and um, kind of. Uh, on the cutting edge, you know, everybody wants to be part of that new, that new, I wouldn't say bright, shiny object, but they want to be part of something that is innovative and new and, and isn't the same old, same old. And I think there's a real opportunity to get um, young scientists and young professionals excited about this area of practice, but we have to, we have to tell them that there is real opportunity here. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And I especially agree with you about the value of cooperatives and the land grant institutions. Now, that was actually a big part of our discussion yesterday. I was up at the far north end of California. We're talking about use of cooperatives for all kinds of things. And we have used it for broadband in really major projects here in California. And we didn't even get to broadband today. Well, and, and honestly, Rob, I think you know, North Dakota has some of the best rural broadband in the country. Oh. Yes. That only that only came about because we have the best co-op system. Ab absolutely. It, it is a model that I wish could be replicated in, in other areas here. But uh, I tell you, some of these basic, you know, as we look at the opportunity and even the workforce challenges and so forth, I mean, it comes back to some of those fundamentals still that, you know, if we don't have in these rural spaces, really fundamental utilities, uh, that's healthcare, that's broadband. Uh, that's water and sewer. I mean, we, we have to get that right in order to create the opportunities for everything else. Well, can I get you guys to come back? I think this has been such a great conversation. I think it's also, uh, Glenda, for a lot of our listeners who listen in the rural South, you know, a real opportunity to spread the good word of, of what you're doing in California, what you're doing with um, like-minded um, people within your consortiums and within your groups. And Rob, obviously, um, the National Farmers Union is such a critical part of spreading the message um, to the policymakers, talking about kind of this broad array of opportunity, not just, uh, I, I think the, the immediate reaction among 
farmers in my part of the country is here it comes again. It's another regulation that I'm not going to get compensated for. It's another burden on my land. Um, you know, and when we can get beyond that and say this is part of a, a really innovative um, kind of uh, new way of thinking about agriculture that adapts a lot of the old way, which is the, the stewardship, which is the conservation programs that were born out of the 30s, which is the land grant colleges, the co-op models, the things that really came out of American agriculture that have been the reason why American agriculture is the most innovative, uh, successful uh, economic story, I think, in the history of our country. Yeah, I'd love to come back. It was a great conversation. And I think you're, you're absolutely correct that, that those, those various components you just named off from agriculture offer so much opportunity. And they're going to produce far more than a regulatory regime. Yeah, I, I, I agree. So, Rob, I hope we can get all back together again. Um, that sounds great. Yeah, I want to thank both of you. What a great conversation. And, and you know, it's so it's it's so wonderful to think about policy. I think the other challenge that we have is when people think about politics, they hate politics. We can't even get people to run in rural America. But if they think that this is why we do politics so we can do the right policy for the future and for uh, you know, the United States of America and for the future of the, the world, um, that that is a different and broader kind of um, calling. And it's broader than just a political calling. Absolutely. Like most farmers, I'm ever the optimist and you know, future looks bright. <laughs> Thanks to both of you. Really appreciate the conversation and let's get together again. Great. Thank you. Sounds good. Thank you.